Howdy and welcome to another BP Movie Journal, the show we do where we talk about the stuff we've seen since the last time we did one of these. I'm David. I'm Tyler. It's been uh, a couple of weeks, few weeks. Um, I feel like just a couple weeks. Okay. Uh, the ninth was the last time we did it, and today's the 23rd, so that's 14 days. Dude. Works out to just about two weeks. Yeah. Give or take, you know, we're not mathematicians. Um. So, yeah, I haven't kept up. Neither of us have kept up uh, the movie a day pace that I never seem to be quite able to live up to. But right. I've got 10, 10 out of 14. Ain't bad. You also have 10. Yeah. Why don't, why don't you get us started? Yeah, I, I really, um, you know, my, my semester is going to be starting soon. And so I realized like, OK, I got to I need to take advantage of my free time and uh, try to pick up the pace a little bit. So I have more than I usually do. Um, and uh, there are a couple of rewatches, but for the most part, these are movies I haven't seen before. Starting with this one, a movie I know you don't care for. Uh, it is uh, David Frankel's The Devil Wears Prada, oh, um, yeah. which I had never seen before. Jen really liked it. And so, uh, and she owns it. And so we've been going through our collection, uh, it, it, I've seen most of them and she hasn't, and most of them she hasn't seen. So it's like, well, let's flip it around. So we'll, we'll be watching a couple of things from Jen's, I love uh, that. Jen's selection. So love that. Uh, yeah, double worst product. Um, there's a lot I like about it from a performance standpoint, certainly. Um, the story itself is, is very working girl. Not that that's a problem. I don't know if you've seen working girl. No, I never um, it's very good. Um, and this reminded me of, of that. And I do think that the film probably has some good, some really interesting things to say, or at least it, it explores some interesting things like the idea of being, uh, an upwardly mobile woman, um, whether it be at the, at the bottom, middle or top and the expectation on like, if you're a, a female, uh, CEO, uh, or whatever it is, um, and you know, you don't get there without probably being a little bit, if I'll just be nice and say assertive. Um, and that if it were a man that were, that was like that, then, you know, people would view that kind of nobly. Whereas if you're a woman, they'll just think you're, I'm sorry to use the term, they'll think you're a bitch or something mm -hmm. like that. Um, and while I'm not, you know, I'm not a hundred percent sure if I agree because yes, there's devil wears Prada, but there's also swimming with sharks. Like it, nobody likes bosses that are mean, um, but, uh, and there are movies that are made about both, but, but nonetheless, I thought it was very interesting, especially when you start to see Anne Hathaway change, but also change in a way that's fairly organic. Uh, you don't quite notice, um, the little, the little choices that she is making in order to, succeed and you also understand why she would make certain personal sacrifices but you also understand why she would want to stay with you know like kind of stick with her boyfriend and, and this other life and yeah. i like um See, now, now we're gonna get to my my problems with the movie but i'll come a, back to that a little bit insofar as like i like that i like that her boyfriend is written in a way where there are moments where he's, you know, he's denigrating his own job. And he's like, I, I do this, you know, as a way of saying like, 
he's not crapping on the fashion industry. He's not saying this is a vapid industry. He's like, I, I cook stuff for these rich assholes over here, whatever it is. And just like, so he's not saying like, my job is somehow more important than yours or, or no, or more noble. Um, but I think he sees that she's, uh, that she is, you know, neglecting like these social responsibilities, which is, you know, not unlike God help me, the family man or any number of other movies about someone who's doing well in business, you know, and the man in the gray flannel, going back to the man in the gray flannel suit, like these sacrifices are being made to do well, but there's going to be a toll. And, um, and so I like that this is, this is from the other perspective, you know, we've seen plenty where like the, the, the put upon wife is waiting at home mm-hmm. and tries to understand, but doesn't understand. And so this is the other side of it. And I do think that the film actually probably sides more with the business side, just because that is what the character is prioritizing. But, um, but I think, yeah, I, I, I think it certainly these days brings up some interesting ideas as far as, you know, I, I feel like there are there have been so many movies about like yes, 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 success is fine, but let's not for you know you don't want to prioritize prioritize work over family or whatever. And I feel like we're getting to the point. If you look at movies like Whiplash uh, and La La Land and the I'm Devil Wears you're Prada, making, you're making points that I was about to make. Oh, okay. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm like, damn, I was going to bring up Damien oh, Chazelle. Um, but I think this is, this is a film that kind of is in that same vein where it's like, it does understand that yes, she's in this relationship and she finds it satisfying, but she is making this other choice. And maybe that's not so bad. Cause I really do like the way that Meryl Streep and Stanley Tucci and Emily Blunt. I like the way they talk about fashion. Oh yeah. That whole scene about cerulean blue. Love it. it. Yeah. One of the best scenes in the movie. Um, so yeah, I, the film was a lot less vapid and, and caricature-ish than I thought it was going to be. Um, and so that was a pleasant surprise. I think my problem with it, and you, you touched on a lot of it, I guess it's just a personal taste, is that I feel like the movie is, it feels wishy-washy because it can't commit. I wish it had gone full Damien Chazelle and, sure. and, and, and endorsed, because I think that's what, I think what the movie actually believes is that she should follow her passion, which is, which is this even it's even to the point of it being obsessive the movie wants her to follow it but the movie is then also torn i think between that and what it thinks it ought to believe which is these more old-fashioned bromides about like uh work isn't everything and all that all that stuff so i feel like when i watch the movie i feel like adrian grenier is the villain of the movie um and i but the movie won't like the movie refuses to portray it that way, even though I think that the movie agrees with me. So it feels disingenuous. Yeah. I feel like it would have, if it had simply focused on the brief glimpses we get of Meryl Streep's life, I feel like that would have been, that's so much more effective Mm. in showing that like, yeah, sacrifices need to be made. And she is mourning those sacrifices, but she is still where she is because that's what she's willing to do. And so, yeah. uh, And I, and I, I love, as always, I love Meryl Streep. I think that she takes a character that could have been way over the top and makes her, I think, very real, very relatable. Same with Stanley Tucci. Um, and of course, the two of them would play husband and wife a few years later mm-hmm. in Julie and Julia, and both of them are wonderful in that. 
And uh, yeah, it's, it's far from a perfect movie, but I, I liked a lot of what it got me thinking about and including fashion itself. Um, you know, I, I realized the other day um, that every single piece of clothing I was wearing shirt, shorts, underwear, and uh, sandals, I had got every single item was gotten at target. So, <laughs> and I was like, oh, this is who I am as a person. And uh, I'm vaguely ashamed of it, but not overly so. Um, and so devil wears Prada, like got me, thinking about fashion in a different way. And it's just like, yeah, there are people who probably think about movies the way I think about fashion. Mm -hmm. And then that scene that you're talking about, it's like, yes, that is, that is someone that is a writer who is, who's committed to taking the audience member by the hand and -hmm. at least carrying him through to see like, no, this is not some vapid, a uh, random thing like everything yeah. is very carefully chosen and planned and, and, and yeah and you're not outside of it, it yeah like it, no matter how much you might want to dismiss it, it it still affects you yeah i am um speaking of what you're, i'm currently wearing this is something i try not to do even though no one would know but me but i'm wearing both a shirt and shorts that are by the same brand mm-hmm. and i feel we i don't know why i like i feel weird doing that but uh, uh i'm wearing lucky brand shorts and 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 uh i guess this is a t-shirt would you call it it's like a it's got like a henley type of the, collar yeah, yeah but uh uh anyway um and then oh last thing on devil wears prada that that uh that harry potter thing is just a bridge too far it's uh, there's too much i cannot suspend my disbelief that that far yeah yeah it's i get what they're trying to do it's it's moments like that where it's a little bit over the top um but it's almost uh, like i mean it's it's almost like it's the movie is asking you to take fashion seriously but then not taking the publishing yeah. the publishing industry seriously yeah treating that as uh as a joke almost yeah. all right uh Let's move on to um, another movie about uh, uh, a powerful woman, uh, and that's a movie that comes out this weekend. It's I never know how to say the director's name, Marjan Satrapi. Hmm. Uh, it's her film Radioactive, which is a biopic of Mary Curie, uh, played by Rosamund Pike. Uh, and it is, for most of the middle part of the movie, it's a, bi- a biopic of both the the Curies. Uh, Pierre Curie is played by Sam Riley, uh, an actor I like a lot. Um, uh, but obviously he's not in the whole movie because I guess spoiler alert for the actual history of the Curies, he died pretty young uh, <gasps> and she continued her, her work in life for decades after he passed away. Um, so uh, it's, yeah, it's more of a Mary Curie biopic than a biopic of the Curies. Um, and I, uh, it's getting, uh, I don't understand. It's getting terrible notices from a lot of people, but I really, really loved it. Um, uh, Marjan Satrapi's style is always very uh, whimsical and, and kind of like labored over, but not in a way that feels sweaty, that feels like handmade. You know, even there are parts where Marie Curie is explaining how elements react and we get a sort of like, it's, it's, it's a CG like visual effects sequence, but it's made to look almost like stop motion. Mm. And the, uh, the movie, lots of shots have like vignetting at the corners of the frame and, um, uh, the color, the color palette of the movie very much 
reminds me of hand tinted silent film, which actually would have Ooh. been at the time that yeah. you know this was happening is what actually would have been. And so I, I feel like it has all these formalistic uh, um, uh, endeavors that uh, really, uh, really engaged me. I thought the movie is very, very beautiful and also takes a big swing um, in these sequences that I guess, as a lost fan, I will call flash forwards to us seeing in the, in our past, but Mary Curie's future, the ways in which her research will be used hmm. to treat cancer or, you know, to blow up Hiroshima and yeah. things like that, you know? And, um, I think, uh, uh, I could definitely see complaints that it's on the nose. It very much is on the nose, but I think Marjan Satrapi's style is such that it's, she's not a subtle artist. <laughs> um, and, uh, I, I, I don't think it's, uh, it being on the nose is not a problem for me. I think it, uh, they're, they're, these, these images are sort of, uh, beautiful in like a sickly way that, that, that sort of, um, uh, hints at the, horror of radi radiology and radioactivity uh while still being on its surface a uh, uh, pretty standard and respectful uh biopic but to, to talk to go back to the thing you were talking about about like uh women in positions you normally see men in or you know things like that like there's something even a even the parts of the movie that are a by the numbers biopic of an eccentric genius type feel different because that genius eccentric genius is a woman and yeah. that like very little, I mean, there are, you know, she encounters some sexism, but that's not her struggle. Isn't these men won't take me seriously because I'm a woman for the most part, at least not in the movie, in the movie, they're often like, people don't want to work, work with me because I'm an asshole because, she, yeah. because she's an eccentric genius type. And that's, you see that so often in depictions of men of like, Oh, they're difficult men, but they created these great things or whatever. Yeah. And uh, there is, I, I don't love that trope, but uh, I just, I have to admit that it is a little bit fun to see Rosamund Pike being that person. Yeah. And just like, Oh, it's nice to see that nobody has a monopoly on being an eccentric asshole. Yeah, exactly. um, so, uh, okay. So next up, this is also from, uh, the, the Jenny Smith collection. Uh, and that is Robert Schwenke's, I think that's how you say his name, the time traveler's wife. Uh, I've never seen that one. I liked it. I liked it a lot. Um, the story involves, uh, Eric Bana, uh, as a guy who is, a time traveler, he has no control over when he travels in time. Uh, okay. It is only in the course of like, he, he doesn't go like all the way back uh, to like, you know, uh, Abraham Lincoln. In fact, the, the situation there, there are certain for lack of a better term rules, but uh, they don't establish them as such that like, he is drawn to certain points in his own life or certain geographical places that are important to him. And so he'll go to the same place over and over again. And the film is in essentially it's, it's nonlinear. Um, and it's just, it's structurally, it's kind of amazing the dialogue probably needs a little bit of work because in order to explain what's going on, they do just often just fall back on 
being a little bit overly uh, expository, but I, I guess I understand why. But like, for example, there's a, a scene where uh, a, a young girl who is a young uh, Rachel McAdams uh, is just like playing in a field. Um, and then, uh, and it's near like some woods and then he shows up in the woods and it's like, it's very creepy and stuff. And he like gets to know her and he already knows everything about her. And, and it, and the reason is the, the Eric Bana that is there is married to this little girl. And so uh-huh. he meets her when she's 30. And then because he is drawn to this, this woman, he, time travels back to when she's a little kid. And so what's interesting is he knows her and then she knows him and she thinks he's some kind of weird imaginary friend. But then we see her walking around and she goes into a library in Chicago and sees Eric Bana and she knows him, but he doesn't know her because she grew up seeing this guy. But he hasn't done that yet. But he hasn't done that yet. So when they first meet, she knows all about him after he has known everything about her, it's so like the structure of it is so interesting and the way they use this very strange, uh, uh, convention, um, or not to convention, this very strange device to sort of reflect on the nature of relationships and that at, at any given moment, you know, uh, like you are obviously married to, uh, your wife now, but you're also, and you're in love with her and all of that, but you're also in love with who she used to be and the realization that they're the same person, uh, but not at the same time. And, um, and that at any given moment in a relationship, this person could really frustrate you or maybe even make you hate them in that moment. And, if you choose to look past that, if you choose to work through that, you're doing that in, in response to this person's past self, even if it's the person from yesterday, the person that wasn't infuriating you. Um, and so it really uh, stru- structurally and um, musically, and I, it really worked for me. I liked it a lot. I, I like any, film and I, I even i even include uh, you know mr and mrs smith in this like any film that explores the dynamics of a relationship and the complexity of a of a long-term relationship in unconventional ways in the case mm-hmm. of mr and mrs smith it's these two characters are spies and they marry each other out of convenience and then of course they discover who they really are and then they have to choose what to do. It's like, yeah, that's pretty much what marriage is. You marry the idea of a person and then you realize who they are and you think, okay, well, what do I do now? And Did you see? Traveler's wife oh, is like that. Um, and then our friend, uh, our friend Tobo is in it. And uh, Oh, great. Sorry, Stephen Tobolowski. We, and, we call him uh, Tobo. Yeah, and he's delightful. And uh, I think you would like it. I think you'd like it a lot. Did you see um, another Brad Pitt marriage movie? Did you see Allied? With him and Marion Cotillard? No. Uh, I really love that movie, but that's a similar uh, sort of unconventional look at at, at marriage. Um, okay, I'm assuming you watch Time Traveler's Wife because you're, you're in the time travel mood because Bill and Ted Face the Music is yeah, coming out. Yeah, of course. Um, new, yeah, uh, new trailer dropped today. I, it's obviously a movie I'm very excited about. Um, I'm a big Bill and Ted stan, did you, I guess. Did you watch the trailer? Because um, I know you don't usually. No, but in cases when I know, like, movie, like, 
it's not i was gonna say like a john wick movie it's not just keanu reeves movies uh yeah. but if there's a movie where i know 100 percent, there's no there's no question that i'm going to see this movie right uh yeah i will i will then watch uh watch the trailer so yes i i, I did watch it um and it looked good all right uh what wasn't good, I watched one of the worst movies I've ever seen. Uh, oh. Shouldn't be much of a surprise. It's considered one of the worst movies of all time. Uh, lives up to, to its expectations. 1952's Bella Lugosi Meets a Brooklyn Gorilla. <laughs> Why do you do this to yourself? <laughs> uh, well, this movie, I'm, I'm glad that I watched it. It's um, uh, because there's a fascinating aspect to it that I'll, that I'll get to. But it's about two guys who fall out of an airplane and land on an island uh, that's inhabited by natives uh, who are obviously depicted with the utmost respect. Of course. Um, uh, no, it's all white people with uh, their faces painted. Um, and the only other white pe- person on the island is a mysterious doctor, played by Bela Lugosi, who the movie sort of, and I guess this was more common at the time, kind of suggests, is Bela Lugosi? Like... Uh, uh, but he has a different name. He does like experiments on the island, but also yeah. there are specific references to like Dracula. <laughs> um, but uh, so the movie's very, very bad, very unfunny. Uh, it's full of terrible, like like I said, racist uh, things. There's also like the one of the two guys has like a love interest, right? And the other guy, the comic relief, is like, oh, "Where's my love interest?" And the the love interest is like, "Well, I have a sister." And it's like, "Oh boy, you have a sister." Yeah, and, boy. Uh, yeah, you already know where this is going. The sister is heavy, basically. <gasps> oh, and then, man. So then there's like a full movie long running gag about how grossed out this guy is by this uh, <laughs> this heavy woman. That like, it's not funny even for a second, and then it goes on the entire movie. <laughs> but what's really fascinating is that uh, thanks to uh, Google and Wikipedia and stuff, I was able to look up. So the, the two guys... They're playing themselves, okay. Duke, Mi- Duke Mitchell and Sammy Petrillo. Mm-hmm. And Sammy Petrillo was like, geez, this guy, this guy looks and talks exactly like Jerry Lewis. And Duke Mitchell is doing a Dean Martin type of thing. This is mm. intentional, I guess. And I looked it up and these, this, these two were like a lounge act who actually did like Martin and Lewis and other like famous duos. Um, and Sammy, Sammy Petrillo had a really like uh, – interesting uh career and kind of sad career where like jerry lewis at one time like signed him to like got him signed to the same talent agency that he was basically in in retrospect just so he could keep the guy from getting work oh boy um uh, yeah jerry lewis great guy great guy um uh but um it's so it's 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 a fascinating sort of artifact because this was like the biggest thing in terms of movies that these guys ever did. They were like they like I said they were like a touring lounge you know stand up type of uh, act together, um, but this is like the one sort of committed to film version of their of their uh, uh, dynamic. So it's fascinating historically, but it is a truly truly bad movie. You and I need to go on the road and do this uh, for the masses. Okay. I mean, not and, now. Yeah, no, no, no. Like once everything lightens up and people are looking sure. for all manner of entertainment, live entertainment, we got to go and take this show on the road. Okay. Next for me. Uh, so uh, sadly, uh, I was not able to partake in uh, 
your conversation with Adam McGoyan. I uh, did not know that, so I actually watched a couple of Adam McGoyan movies um, to prepare for a discussion I had no part in. Um, the first being the film Remember from 2015, starring Christopher Plummer, uh, in which he plays uh, an older man with dementia who is uh, 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 an Auschwitz survivor. His wife dies while he is in a retirement home. And then uh, another uh, resident, uh, played by Martin Landau, um, said, reminds him that, like, you know what you said you would do when your wife died uh, was, because these two men were both in, in Auschwitz, uh, you would track down, like, the, the one of the guards at, at Auschwitz who, like, killed our, uh, our families, who immigrated to the u.s under a different name i've done the research um and here's the information so uh so christopher Plummer, it's like it's one of those things it's you know similar to like broken flowers where there's there are four guys in the u.s with this name and so he goes to each one and uh and one of them indeed was uh, a former nazi played by bruno gans um, but it's the different, it's the wrong guy, not the actual guy at, at Auschwitz. Uh, and then he goes to another, uh, played by, uh, Jurgen Prognow. And so, and so along the way, uh, uh, Christopher Plummer is sort of still having to remember that his wife is gone and like he has moments of lucidity, uh, but then he also has moments of, of forgetfulness and, and all that. So, uh, it's kind of a, in many ways, it's kind of a schlocky premise. It's the kind of thing where um, it's like, I don't usually like when people use uh, the Holocaust in this way um, to kind of create a, a strange, uh, almost drama thriller. But at the same time, I do respond to the way um, Adam McGoyan makes movies, uh, the way he uses the camera. And this is something that I'll say when we get to the next movie as well. Um, I think he's he's just such an inquisitive filmmaker. He's such a something that you and I uh, talk about a lot. He's very curious, and mm -hmm. he, whether he is telling uh, the, a straightforward dramatic story in Sweet Hereafter, or he's telling a true story, which you would see in like Devil's Knot, um, there's an element to the way that he allows the camera to linger on a person's face, uh, and then gathering details of what they are doing. Uh, and then often will uh, the the camera will very slowly push in, and it really does seem like uh, Agoyan is is acknowledging that we are spectators watching this story, and that we're we're trying to go in for a closer look, but we're only ever going to get so close. Um, and so I the film is is very good. Great performance by Christopher Plummer. Great performance by Martin Landau, as one would expect. Um, and even though the story itself um, is in its own way a little bit outlandish, uh, I still responded to it because of the way that Adam McGoyan makes movies and those performances. So uh, it's called Remember. Um, I, I liked it quite a bit. All right. Um... Next up for me is uh, a documentary that was interesting, but as I often say when it comes to documentaries that are about musicians or bands, mm. uh, was it more 
illuminating than just having listened to this person's music for, uh, in this case, like 80 minutes. Uh, and I, it, it failed that test, but the movie is called wild combination, a portrait of Arthur Russell. And it is about, uh, the, the uh, late musician, uh, Arthur Russell, who sort of, um, the movie is from 2008. And I remember, um, so when I was in college or maybe right after college is when, Arthur Russell was kind of rediscovered because he made music mostly in the, in the seventies and into the eighties. And then he died um, of complications related to AIDS uh, in the 1980s and around, I actually looked this up uh, uh, to see if I had the date, right. It was in 2004. There was a, uh, a compilation album that came out called the world of Arthur Russell. And so it was some of his solo material plus material he did uh, under, he made dance music under pseudonyms like loose joints and Indian ocean and stuff like that. But then he made his own solo music that was sometimes he could be a little country. And then sometimes it was very avant-garde in a way that feels way ahead of its time. And that's why in the two thousands it took, it it took 20 years uh, for people to enough people to really catch up. Um, and uh it's really really beautiful music um uh he was a a fascinating guy um he was friends with alan ginsburg so alan ginsburg shows up um uh and that's actually weirdly going to come up again in another documentary i talk about uh, alan ginsburg kept showing up in the movies i was watching um um so if you want to know about Arthur Russell, you could watch Wild Combination, but I would say first start by listening to his music. Get the World of Arthur Russell compilation that I remember. I remember when I worked at a video store in college, someone else brought that in and we would listen to it uh, over the stereo at the video store um, uh, quite a bit. And then uh, I've since, uh, his, his the final album he made, I think in 84, is called it's also world of world of echoes. Maybe um, I've listened to that quite a, quite a lot too. So I would say start with familiarizing yourself with his music. And then if you're still interested, sure, check out the movie. But uh, I guess I'm more endorsing Arthur Russell than I am the movie. All right. So next up for me is another Adam and Goyan movie. It is uh, his most recent film guest of honor, which uh, I enjoyed quite a bit. Um, it's the kind of thing I was, I was looking at, um, because it hasn't gotten great reviews. Um, it got at so, least one great review. Well, I know, yes, great on, right on a number of levels. What do you think of that? Oh, thank you. Um, but I was looking at, at people's complaints, and I guess I see where they're coming from, but for the most part, like, I don't know. I mean, I, you know, people said, like, well, it's too dour or it's too quirky or what, or it's too out, you know, a little bit outlandish, whatever. You know, how can it be dour? And quirky, I feel like. It seems strange, right? Uh, I feel like it's more quirky than dour. And I think the people who accused it of being dour weren't sort of giving it credit for how tongue-in-cheek a lot of the dourness is. Yeah. And I mean, I would say there's definitely a mournfulness to Mm -hmm. it, but you can be mournful without being dour, to keep using that word. Um, And... I, yeah, I really liked the, I, I liked the nonlinear nature of the story. I like, uh, I think as I, as I get older, I become, uh, I become more and more interested in stories that talk about the interaction of the past and the present and using the past to unravel the present and vice versa. Uh, and that's definitely the case with guest of honor where I don't, I don't want to 
go into a lot of detail about the story because there are some revelations that come along sometime, you know, some of them like about halfway through some towards the end. So I don't want to go into a lot of detail, but, uh, but I, it does, it is, it is structured a little bit like a mystery or rather somebody trying to untangle something, uh, you know, maybe not a mystery, but certainly like a puzzle of sorts um, as we are trying to sort through these characters' lives. Uh, and in doing so, we have to sort of focus on who they are and what they're like. And, and the film is sort of framed in that way where we are reflecting on a certain character and uh, his, his mannerisms, his patterns, and that sort of thing played, I think, wonderfully by David Thewlis, who's playing a character who's fairly mm-hmm. meticulous, um, as he should be because of the nature of his job, but also just who he is as a person. Um, and so this gets back to the way Agoyan makes movies is that he has such an eye for detail because I think he recognizes uh, the nature of, of memory and the nature of observation um, that when, when you're thinking back on someone, it could be someone you lost or it could be, you know, just uh, someone that is still around, but you're reflecting on who they are. Yes. Of course, you're going to think about the personality. You're going to think about what they look like. You're going to think about what they do, what they're good at, but you're also going to think of the little idiosyncrasies um, of, of their behavior. And in the case of something like guest of honor and a character like David Thewlis, uh, he's just so, uh, he's so meticulous. Um, and so the way the film pauses to show him, whether it be exploring a restaurant or like cleaning up after, uh, you know, a pet rabbit. Um, I really appreciate the <laughs> way that, that uh, Adam McGoyan recognizes that all of these little details make up who we are. It's not just the big, broad mistakes we've made or things that we've done or whatever it is. That's a big part of it. But all of this makes up a person and to the degree that we can ever figure someone out uh, all of this needs to be brought into it. Um, And so, and I, and I also think that he has tremendous sympathy for his characters. There's a character played by, I don't know how you say his first name, Rossif, Rossif, Sutherland. And he's, he's not a sympathetic character, but, but even in the way he's played, but also the way that he's shot and the way the camera lingers on his face, we, we see a lot of sadness there, a lot of loneliness there and resentment. And even though I don't, I don't, um, I don't endorse what he does or, or the way that he does it. I, and I think the film doesn't either, but I think it at least acknowledges that so many of the bad things that we do come from a place of hurt and, mm a place of sadness or just someone looking for some kind of fulfillment and then making the wrong choice in that attempt. Um, That seems to me, and that's not just with him. That seems to be throughout the movie. A lot of the, 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 what's the word? The, the phrase that often gets used is hurt people, hurt people. Uh, And uh, you see cycles uh, in this movie of, of, of people uh, uh, revisiting their pain on others who don't deserve it. Yeah. I really liked it. Um, and I uh, just the, the, the standalone scenes of him being a health inspector are, are yeah. fascinating. They're, yeah, they're, they're funny and strange. Um, and, and they work as kind of little short films a lot of the time. Yeah. All right. Uh, I keep forgetting that, um, that we're going one at a time. Uh, so next of oh, all, I watched the movie that I've been meaning to get to for a year. It's a Netflix movie. Um, again, I guess in preparation for Bill and Ted, not really, but another time travel movie. Uh, I watched see you yesterday. Okay. 
um, which is an, it's an odd movie that I'm really glad exists. I'm glad I watched it. I don't think it's entirely successful, but it, it attempts and it on occasion manages to blend like fun sci-fi kids adventure movie <coughs> with serious social issue drama, which is basically, it's about like two nerdy high school kids, um, both black kids who are working on inventing time travel. Okay. Uh, because they, and they want to get an A from their teacher played by obviously Michael J. Fox. Um, uh, and, uh, and then they get, or get is the wrong word, but they have an unfortunate opportunity to put their, um, their invention to use when the, the, the girl character's older brother is, uh, mistakenly shot and killed by a police officer. Um, and so they decide to go back in time to try and, and, and fix this. And, and so the, the, the tone is, uh, awkward at times, but um, I'm, like I said, I'm glad that it exists. And I think it's, it, it, it sort of, it stops being a fun adventure at a certain point and sort of becomes um, about the, I think the frustration of being in a, in a community like these kids, like these kids live in and, and other people who, who look like them live in where it feels like there's nothing you can do you know, that, that, uh, it doesn't matter. Like her brother wasn't shot because he was doing anything wrong. It's because he was, uh, standing with another black guy who was and they're roughly the same age as two different black guys who robbed a store in the nearby neighborhood. And that's all yeah. that, all that it took nothing. They weren't doing anything wrong. And so, and then even, I don't want to get too much into the story and, and spoilers, but these two kids attempts to, to fix it end up sort of like complicating things or, or they have to go back multiple times. And it's just about this frustration of like, there's nothing that we can do to address, uh, you know, on our own to, to address, uh, mm. these, these wrongs. It's, it's a, it's a fascinating movie. It also, like I said, it's tonally unbalanced. It feels a little, uh, amateurish at times, uh, which isn't necessarily a complaint, but, uh, you know, it is what it is here. Uh, see you yesterday. Uh, fascinating movie. Uh, I, I look forward to more from the, uh, the director. All right. So next up for me, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it cause I, it's not, it doesn't feel like it requires it. Um, is, uh, uh, a documentary by Peter Bogdanovich called the great buster, a celebration, which is a documentary about Buster Keaton. Um, that is interesting on a number of levels. If you, if you like Buster Keaton, you will find the film uh, interesting because it is indeed a celebration of who he is uh, as a person, as a performer um, and as a director. Uh, it, it interviews a lot of people. I mean, it's, this is the kind of talking head documentary that I like where there's a, a, a retrospective quality and mm -hmm. you get to talk to people about the, the influence and it's you get somebody like, OK, well, here's James Karen and Nick Kroll. Yeah. And Werner Herzog and Quentin Tarantino and Dick Van Dyke and Richard Lewis and Leonard Malton and French Stewart. Like, it's just such a weird combination of people. Uh, Wait, but French the, Stewart from Stargate? 
<laughs> yes, that's him. Thank you. Thank you. Um, but, uh, and of course, you know, you get like Bill Irwin, French Stewart, Johnny Knoxville, Bill Hader, like guys who, for whom physical comedy is, uh, sort of a, a trademark of theirs. Um, so that's, that's unsurprising, but then you also get filmmakers who really respond to his technical style and, and that sort of thing. So, uh, it's interesting to hear what people have to say about Buster Keaton. And I also like how much they, they draw parallels between what he did and then what they do. They interview John Watts, who uh, has made the most recent Spider-Man movies. And he talks about the influence. It's like, okay, well, I have a main character who we have to determine what he is thinking and feeling based on his physicality. Uh, and we actually are doing a thing where, you know, Spider-Man, like they allow his eyes to get bigger and smaller. And like, that's how we can show expression. So he's like, okay, well, if we don't have facial expression, except maybe just a slight variation in the eyes. So he went back and looked at Buster Keaton and said, okay, well, what can I learn from him? And so I really appreciate that. And then from, from a structure standpoint, Bogdanovich does something I really like, which is he goes through Keaton's like life and and he talks about, you know, his heyday in the 20s and briefly touches on some of the movies that he made. Uh, and then once he gets to the end of Keaton's life, he doubles back and then talks more in depth about these films from the 20s. And it's sort of as in its own way, it's 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 structured like a legacy, which is here's the person's whole life and here's why we're talking about their whole life. Uh, and so it's a combination of history and analysis, which I really like. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, it would certainly be a good primer on Buster Keaton, but if, and if you already like Buster Keaton, you might not learn anything new, but, uh, but it's called the great Buster, a celebration. And it certainly feels like that. And, uh, and I enjoyed it. That sounds great. Um, all right. So, <laughs> Uh, now, as a fellow movie obsessed person, and I'm sure our listeners can all relate to this feeling that you can never catch up. There's always, oh yeah, there's always movies that you haven't seen. And then also, as an adult in your 30s, you understand that time moves a little faster than it used to. And so, I'm sure you have this thing where there's movies that you've been meaning to get to so long that it still kind of feels recent, but then you look up and you realize, oh, this movie's 14 years old. Oh yeah. So I finally, why I finally crossed uh, Richard Kelly's sophomore uh, feature Southland Tales oh. off of my list, and uh, unfortunately, I hated the movie. Okay, uh, have you seen it? No, I haven't. Okay, uh, it, it 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 feels it, it feels like uh, it feels cheap and shallow. It's also incredibly ugly to look at, which I think is kind of intentional, but that also doesn't make it fun to watch for two and a half hours. Um, uh, it's got some very, very crude um, sexual humor and some very uh, uh, merciless violence. It felt like an Uwe Boll movie in that way uh, to me at times. But I also, again, like with like I said about See You Yesterday, but in a different way, I'm like really glad it exists because now 14 years after the fact, the movie's actually really fascinating 
time capsule, not just in terms of like mid two thousands, like aesthetics and, and, and style and everything feels like, uh, you know, a monster energy drink or, <laughs> or whatever, but also a time capsule of like liberal anxieties during the George W. Bush administration post Patriot Act, you know, um, that's a big part of what the movie is, is not only post Patriot Act, but also post like rise of Fox news, a big part of, uh, the, the story, which doesn't actually make any sense. And I don't care. Uh, but is that this, um, increasingly increasing government overreach, um, and also, uh, uh, increasing like infotainment replacing, uh, actual, uh, uh, information and actual actual news um and so it's it's really interesting in in that way and some of it is just so go for broke that uh uh um it is it is fun the 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 cast is full of comic actors for the most part uh in a it's sort of a precursor to the informant uh casting a bunch of comic actors and mm-hmm. largely non-comic roles although amy poehler's character is clearly supposed to be funny uh but sherry o'terry has a big part john lovitz plays a like stone cold murderous cop uh in the movie. um uh john larroquette is in it and actually gets to be kind of funny as the like uh holmes osborne from donnie darko plays a mm. uh, a senator or a congressman who's running for election and john larroquette plays campaign manager or chief of staff or one of those type of things and actually gets to be kind of kind of funny but while sean uh is, is in it uh, in a ridiculous wig um uh nora dunn is in it as a uh the uh they're called the neo-Marxists. She's a, a left-wing uh, activist. Um, uh, it's, it's I like crazy. all these people. Yeah, I mean, Justin Timberlake uh, is in it and has um, the, I think, what is the highlight scene of the movie, even though it has nothing to do plot-wise with the movie. But he, I, it's sort of framed as kind of a drug hallucination, but basically he does this dance and lip sync with all these choreographed answers to a killer's song that I don't even really, I don't really like the killers that much. I didn't really know the song, but it's yeah. a, uh, it's the best part of the movie. Cause it just comes out and he just like snorts some drugs. And then suddenly this musical number happens. <laughs> and I, uh, thought that was fun. Uh, the rock is, I don't know what he's, what he's doing. Uh, Sarah Michelle Geller, uh, has a, has a major part in it and is very game. I think that's one thing about Sarah Michelle Geller that I've always liked. She seems very game. Um, cause she plays a porn star who is trying to sort of, uh, leverage her personality into kind of a, uh, I guess what we, it's kind of a precursor of what we see as like a celebrity, like brand, like a goop type of like sure. you know, self-help, you know, uh, internet talk shows type of, um, uh, uh, and, you know, so, so she, she has a lot of like a lot of the crass humor, I think, unfortunately comes from her porn star background, but she really sells, uh, uh, she says, uh, she, I can't she's talking about like the violence of porn, you know, like and, and degradation, but she's like, I like to get fucked. I like to get fucked hard. <laughs> and there's, uh, she's very funny in, in, in those scenes, but, uh, uh, overall the movie's, uh, a mess. It's very ugly to look at. I didn't even mention Sean William Scott in a challenging dual role. Um, uh, uh and I've, I've always liked him. It's, it, it's, uh, it's a fascinating movie. That's not very good. I don't know what else to say about it. Uh, yeah, it's, I've, I, I usually 
value that, uh, which is like, well, it may be terrible, but at least it's interesting. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Which is, is often how I feel about somebody like a, uh, like a Zack Snyder. You look at Sucker Punch, it's like, this is dumb as rocks, but yeah. I, I, I'm glad I saw it. Um, uh, okay, so next up, this yeah, is... Yeah, I think uh, I, I remember when Sucker Punch was, was, before it had come out, I think I might have said on this podcast, we've been doing this podcast for so long, that I might have said that sucker punch has a 90% chance of being terrible and a 10% chance of being a masterpiece. And it ended up kind of being both. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. Uh, I feel like that's a movie I would like to revisit, but I, I get the impression that once I will, once I do, I'd be like, why did I do this to yeah. myself again? Yeah. Um, okay. So this is a, a rewatch. Uh, David, I don't know if, if you're like me in this regard that, you just start going down uh, a certain rabbit hole. And before you know it, you've engaged in like every aspect of something. So like I recently uh, had to take a long drive and I realized that I had never read the book, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Hmm. Uh, And so I had been listening to audiobooks lately. And so I was like, okay, I'll just, I'll put on the audiobook. It's going to be three hours, no problem. And uh, so I threw it on. And uh, so once I started doing that, then it's like, well, obviously now I have to watch the 2005 Charlie and Chocolate oh. Factory. <laughs> and I thought you were going to well, listen to Charlie and the Glass Elevator. Oh, no, I'm, cur- I'm curious to do so, though. But, I read um, both books when I was a kid. I remember liking. I, I read a lot of Roald Dahl, but I never read that one. Um, but then I watched Willy Wonka in the Chocolate Factory. So as I. Willy Wonka is officially the one I'm, I want to talk about, but it's all encompassing here. That's the 70s one. Uh, the 70s one. Yeah. Um, and I'm also in the midst of uh, putting together my, my syllabi for um, the upcoming fall semester. And in my film aesthetics class, we have a week devoted to um, uh, adaptation. And I feel like Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory is a, that might be the film that I choose to show because it is such a wonderful adaptation of that book because it it takes elements from the book that are maybe only touched upon and then uses those to expand the the story expand the world and make it more of a movie i hate to put it that way there's nothing wrong with charlie and the chocolate factory as a book but it ultimately comes down to the fact that like, okay, well there are these five kids at the chocolate factory, four of them make these terrible mistakes and the one that's left wins. And that's it. Mm -hmm. Like Charlie's the one that's left the end. And as opposed to, uh, you know, because then all Charlie has to do is walk around and not do anything wrong. And so once he, once he gets to the chocolate factory, he doesn't have a great deal of agency and he becomes something of a passive protagonist. Um, Whereas, and it's like, well, that, that might work for a book. In fact, it kind of does because when you can, when you can read a character's inner thoughts and feelings, or it can talk about what that person is observing, then you get, you're still from their perspective, but you're not, but they're not, even when they're not doing anything. Whereas in Wally Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, like, well, we need Charlie to be a more active character. So, uh, they invent, invent the character of Slugworth as like, hey, uh, I'm going to tempt you to steal the everlasting gobstopper. Uh, and then they introduce the idea of fizzy lifting drinks where uh, 
Charlie and Grandpa Joe like do something they're not supposed to do, just like all the other kids do. And they almost get chopped up by that fan up in the ceiling and they then they burp and they get out of the situation. But Willy Wonka still discovers that. And, uh, you know, Charlie has done has transgressed just like all the other characters. He just happened to sort of seemingly get away with it. Uh, And so even as Wonka is yelling at him and saying, you lose, you get nothing. Uh, Charlie makes an active choice to return the everlasting gobstopper. And so he's making a series of choices, most of them pure, most of them good. And then he makes a bad choice, which, and he could make another bad choice, which sounds pretty good when this guy's yelling at you, but he does, he chooses to do the pure thing. So, despite them changing the title and it's Willy Wonka in the chocolate factory, they still understand that our main character is Charlie. And for, and for this to work as a movie, uh, he needs to, we need to remind the audience over and over that he's still here and that he's continuing to make choices throughout. And I think it's like, given how, how odd, the the production of Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory is that it was made at a pretty low budget and it was and the the music was written before the script was written and so like they add in all these things and I think it's it's a perfect adaptation like it's still very much in the spirit of the book but they recognize that this is a different medium whereas Tim Burton with the 2005 version uh from a story standpoint, he almost totally, uh, he just goes almost plot point for plot point. Um, and as a result, Charlie starts to just disappear, even though he's played by Freddie Highmore, uh, an actor that I really like, uh, grandpa Joe's played by what's, uh, shoot. I don't remember his name. The, uh, from, he's the, the older gentleman from waking Ned divine. Um, is it, it's not David Kelly. Maybe it's David Kelly. I don't remember, but, um, anyway, but yeah. And so it's, it really is just like a, a great example of someone who understands the difference between this original medium and film and then making the proper changes while still maintaining the tone and spirit of the source material. And so, uh, so I was very happy that I rewatched, I've, I'd seen it many times, but like, I really got an appreciation from a structural standpoint of Willy Wonka and the chocolate factory. Uh, all right. Next up, another documentary. Uh, this one doesn't have Allen Ginsberg in it. That's later. Uh, <laughs> but this is a movie that I think Tyler, it, it comes out, uh, on VOD, um, in August. Tyler, I think you really like it. Even though I was excited to see it because it's a hockey movie. and I like hockey. You don't like hockey, but wait till I'm I tell you what po- the story. I'm not opposed to hockey. I don't dislike <laughs> um, hockey. I don't know. Maybe you've even heard of the documentary. It's called red penguins. And it is about the fact that so after the Soviet union, uh, dissolved, the uh soviet the red army hockey team the official the official hockey team of russia was and still is sort of run by the army mm. um and they were the greatest hockey team uh, historically the greatest hockey team in the world they won yeah. the most uh titles and everything but without uh the soviet government they were flat broke and so the owners of the Pittsburgh Penguins, along with some other investors, including again, Michael J. Fox, (laughs) um, uh, basically you can't say like the, Michael J. Fox would have contributed, (laughs) but he was, you know, Um, on rough financial times. 
um, Michael J. Fox actually says like you can't uh, they can't say they co-owned it because it's still the Army's hockey team, but they took a 50% financial stake in return for some for 50% of the profits. And they sent over a marketing guy from the Pittsburgh Penguins to, uh, to, to, to Moscow. And um, they... It basically the movie is just it's so much fun because there's all these like just crazy stunts they pulled they had like literally like free beer night um oh boy. <laughs> uh they had uh, in between periods they had essentially strippers oh because there was of of course in the basement of the arena that where the the red army hockey team played there was a strip club so they hired the strippers who worked in the basement of the arena to come up and basically like follow the Zamboni around like skating and like taking off their clothes. Uh, they had live bears on the ice. <laughs> they pulled all these crazy stunts. Um, and I guess minor spoiler, it still failed. They ended up like having to, the, the penguins had to pull out uh, of this and there, you know, I love a documentary that works for on the, the, the surface level of like it, the story it wants to tell is a great story. And that absolutely is true here, but also reveals other things, which is the idea that I think there's, especially at this time, there was an American assumption that the Soviet Union went away. Now they have freedom as we define it as Americans and they will want to be just like us. And, and I think there is a, 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 a liberal tendency, especially to assume that people are more alike than different. Sure. And, and here in this movie is an illustration of like the, just the culture of America and the culture of Russia, especially in the media that's of the Soviet Union are so fundamentally different that these things cannot survive one another, that the, that, that this way of, of doing things was not going to, to last. It, it gets into some, like the mafia gets involved in all this like crazy stuff. Um, and, uh, it, it, it really is a, an enlightening culture clash documentary underneath just being a super fun story. Um, it reminds me of that documentary exporting Raymond, uh, in which was oh, Phil, Rose Phil yeah. Rosenthal, I think, yeah. um, is brought over to, help uh russian tv executives like make a version of everybody loves raymond but of course the 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 culture is very different and so yeah. it's phil rosenthal you know bringing like well the the whole reason that this works is because it's meant to reflect some level of reality obviously a heightened reality because it's a sitcom but like the dynamics between characters uh and then they they looked at the way the that these actors in, in on Russian television, like everything was really over the top. And, and like the, the characters were like incredibly made up because, well, no realism isn't a thing that we value. Like right. instead we want our stars to look good. Uh, and so, so they couldn't preserve the subtlety of everybody loves Raymond. <laughs> you know what? I mean, it's, you know, it's basically a Jim Jarmusch film, uh, you know, compared, <laughs> compared to what yeah. the Russians were doing. But, uh, but it is interesting to see that like, you know, we, it's, it's interesting. Like we, when we think of like China or Japan, like we think of like, okay, that is a, that's a full on culture clash a hundred percent and Russia, because it has a European Slavic quality to it. Uh, 
and like we look at like some of the movies that are put out and it's like, oh, that seems definitely European in its own way. But at the same time, there are very definite East versus West mm. uh, uh, conflicts, uh, cultural conflicts. Uh, I, I was reminded of there's a, I can't remember if you watched the Americans. I only watched the first two seasons. No, I've heard wonderful things about uh, it. Yeah. I need to go back and watch the rest of it, but there's an episode where there, and apparently this is based in something that actually happened where the Soviets became convinced there was going to be a military coup against Ronald Reagan. And uh, so Carrie Russell and Matthew Reese as the Soviet agents, you know, undercover uh, in America are told to like prepare for this. And Carrie Russell is actually preparing for it. And Matthew Reese, who's the character who is assimilated more is mm-hmm. like, there's not going to be a military coup. Like that's not something that happens in this. This is a different yeah. country. Yeah. Uh, it's, it was a fascinating episode. Um, all right. What's next for you? Well, speaking of communist countries, I didn't mean to do this when I was commenting on when I was talking about China, but uh, this is a documentary called Ask No Questions, directed by Jason Loftus and Eric uh, Petticelli. Um, and it is about this uh, instance of the followers in China uh, in the uh, early 2000s, um, followers of a sort of an, uh, a religious movement that's an offshoot of Buddha- Buddhism called Falun Gong. And it's very it's very peaceful and like that's the emphasis there's a almost a tai chi quality to it like as far as like the the link between spirituality and physical movement and that sort of thing so um and it was uh it was gaining um it started out as sort of this fringe movement but uh then it started gaining popularity in china and the uh, then one day uh, in Tiananmen Square, a number of uh, Falun Gong uh, followers decided to not decided to. They you know had this planned out like self immolation thing, and uh, and it immediately got everybody's. It was it, you know it was on video. Uh, it was run over and over again. Um, there were a couple of people that actually survived, and they were taken. Oh, they were they were really taken care of by the Chinese government. They went on uh, and gave interviews and talked about how they were part of this this terrible cult, essentially, and that the Chinese government took good care of them. And it really the whole incident just changed the the Chinese people's minds. And suddenly they saw Falun Gong as this horrible thing um, that that hurt people. And the the director, Jason Loftus. Uh, or one of the directors, Jason Loftus, is a follower of uh, Falun Gong. And he's just like, this doesn't really fit at all with what this belief system is. And so he and and some other people have spent the last several years looking into the details of this. And unsurprisingly, if you know things about the Chinese government, uh, there's more than what it seems. Uh, and it's suggested that maybe... Uh, this whole thing was staged uh, or uh, what, you know, whatever the the situation may be. And, and it really does make the, it's, it's fascinating um, when you hear about communist governments Um, and I really, you know, obviously our government is not perfect, but when you hear about communist governments and just like how much, control they have over everything and the most important thing and of course we know this uh as students of film and if you look back Mm -hmm. at like the soviet films of the 1920s like 
perception is everything and they own the media. And so they can, so they actually show like clips of Chinese media in which like the, the, the anchors are just openly talking about the evil of Falun Gong. Like they just, yeah, it's not even like an opinion, you know, it's not yeah. a, not a Chinese version of the O'Reilly factor or something like that. Um, that's a dated reference, I guess, uh, Hannity. Um, and so soon to be a dated reference as well. Is that, is, is he, yeah. uh, in a thing? I don't know. Did he do something? Uh, he's one track. of, he's one of a number of, uh, Fox personalities who have been accused of, uh, sexual harassment over the past few days. Over the past few days. Oh, okay. Yes. I haven't been keeping track, uh, of really any news in, in the last uh, week or so, but, um, yeah. And so, the thing that really struck me, it's, it's a really well done, well-researched documentary. Um, it, it really invites you to come in and and reevaluate the footage that you've seen. Um, and I think that my, my big takeaway, and I wrote a review of this and I wrote a review of the film and I tried to capture this in the review that like it, the fact that J that Jason Loftus, one of the directors is a Falun Gong follower of course now he he has a vested interest in this story and so the film has an emotion to it and and an anger to it that's very palpable and one that we don't really ex we don't usually see in documentaries and and the documentaries that we do see that very palpable anger in are ones that usually are a little bit suspect because it seems like the director has an axe to grind and so i was just thinking that like you know, the Chinese, the Chinese government is, it absolutely takes in, into account the emotions of the viewer and it capitalizes on that to say, to play into a person's natural fears. Uh, so that like, oh, you see these people very publicly lit themselves on fire. You, you are going to, you consider that a crazy thing. So we're going to take advantage of that so that we can turn your opinion. We can manipulate your opinion based on your emotions and your perceptions and turn it towards to our advantage. Meanwhile, if a director uh, brings any emotion, especially with a uh, documentary, if a director brings any emotion into it, suddenly we are suspect. And it just seems so, uh, I, I mean, I get it and I understand, but in a way it's just like, it really is like we, we expect the director, the directors of this film to sort of play by the rules, even though the Chinese government does not play by the rules. Mm -hmm. um, it's like, no, you guys need to be aloof and uh, very technical and clinical. And that is how you will convince me. Meanwhile, the, the movie, the, the, the government they are making a movie about does not believe that at all and they do not hold themselves to that standard and so i just found myself think it's like feeling bad for the directors like they're trying to make this movie and of course they're angry why wouldn't they be angry but that exact humanity because anger and sadness like these they're all very human emotions and to in infuse your film with those emotions is a very human decision uh and yet somehow that's the thing that makes us kind of give them the, the side eye and look at them suspiciously. Uh, and so I just, it got me thinking and I was just like, man, it is an uphill battle. If you are, you know, uh, a documentary, a documentarian, or maybe an artist in general who has a point to make a very real point to make uh, about people who, 
who are not going to hold themselves to any standard except whatever helps them to win. Uh, and it just, it's, it's hard to not feel like it's all so very futile. Um, but anyway, ask no questions is a very good, very informative documentary. And it just got me thinking about like the form in general and like the standard we hold it to and that it, the standard it holds itself to usually rightfully, I think. Um, but, uh, yeah, anyway, uh, that was a bit of a, of a ramble, but there you go. Uh, well, speaking of, as we were earlier, uh, sexual assault uh, or sexual harassment and assault allegations, I watched the new film from Colombian director Ciro Guerra, um, who directed Embrace of the Serpent, which I loved, right. and then Birds of Passage, which I thought was pretty good, um, uh, but felt a little weird about watching his new film, given uh, some... Uh, pretty upsetting things that have been uh, uh, levied at him in, in the in recent weeks, mm. um, but it's I believe it's his first English language film. It's called Waiting for the Barbarians. It's based on a novel that is apparently very famous, but I'm a literature dummy and uh, was not aware of this novel. Um, and it stars Mark Rylance uh, is is the lead, and then the two villains of the movie are Johnny Depp and Robert Pattinson. So mm. fun! I mean, Johnny Depp. Well, I know we're all kind of sick of him, and he doesn't do much in this movie to yeah. uh, uh, to change. He he does in this movie kind of what you expect him to do in this movie. Um, you know, it's it's such a weird thing with him because you know, there are these, there are these allegations about him, you know, with him with Amber Heard and then this audio, which I had the, uh, unfortunate, uh, experience of listening to of Amber Heard, like, yeah, I don't know why like, you do I, that to yourself. I just like read about I, it and I was because like, because I want to, because I, for the same reason that I forced myself to watch the George Floyd video, which is like, I want to, this, this may not be pleasant, but yeah, it's not pleasant. Um, and I want to be engaged. I want to be informed. Um, but here's the thing. So even if it turns out, and it sounds like it was just like the, everything about that relationship is just horrible and in every way, but even if that weren't the case, even if Amber Heard is just a monster and Johnny Depp is 100% the victim, putting that aside, just artistically, I know exactly what you're talking about, which is like, yeah. we've, we've seen your bag of tricks. We know what you can do. And if you just, if you could just scale back for a while, that would be great. Yeah. It's uh, uh but uh, so the, the, the story, uh, Mark Rylance plays the head officer at a sort of military outpost, a British military outpost uh, in a unnamed sort of far East colony. Um, so this keeps up zero Guerra's movies are, always um anti-colonialism that's definitely what he's uh uh fixated on in in his movies um and so here you've got uh basically the storyline is that giant up who plays uh, a visiting military figure who's there to question some of the locals or natives or as he calls them barbarians um about some impending attacks on uh, uh on these on, on on the british military and he's such a sadist and then so ends up being robert pattinson who comes after him uh that clearly the attacks that eventually if they eventually come probably wouldn't have happened if 
British military officers like Johnny Depp and Robert, Pat- Robert Pattinson hadn't gone around torturing uh, local people. Um, and so, I mean, talk about, you you, you just mentioned uh, Charlie and Charlie and the Chocolate Factory being a passive protagonist. It's Mark Rylance is basically, he plays the one good man in the British military, but who is completely at a loss as to what to do about it. Yeah. Um, and so it's basically two hours of seeing uh, Mark Rylance get shit upon by his military superiors. Um, and... So Ciro Guerra, uh, as a director, his his visual style would tend to be very sort of solemn, but like expansive and beautiful. You know, he he likes big, almost like Western type vistas, open countrysides um, with a sense of of the ominous about them. It's very beautiful, but there's a certain just just a sense of 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 uh, what's what I'm looking for. Diminishing returns with his movies. Uh, yeah. Embrace of the Serpent was was so great um and then with with each of his movies i kind of like i don't because i find his visual style very beautiful and alluring um i don't i'm not ever mad that i'm watching them but it does seem like i wish he could do more and maybe it was just the fact that embrace of the serpent had sort of magical realism to it and birds of passage and waiting for the barbarians don't. So maybe it feels like they never take off the way embrace the serpent uh, Mm. did because there is sort of his style implies a hint of something uh, uh, mystical or the idea of that, that God or a God is watching and maybe could intervene. And so the Mm. fact that, nothing like that happens in those two movies maybe uh makes them feel anticlimactic but um the movies uh, it's it's very pretty to look at um it's a nice acting showcase from mark rylance um and robert pattinson uh is is very good uh in the movie uh, in the movie too there's uh um uh because he's his his character is a a dick but unlike giant up is like an active sadist robert pattinson's character is just so so sure that he's right there there's a part where mark rylance like questions robert pattinson robert pattinson doesn't get angry at him he's almost like just confused Mm. uh it's, it's a really nice performance it's the smallest role of the of the three though um i'll say this looking at these photos his hair looks great (laughs) <laughs> okay almost a little uh, almost a little too good uh, um, well Maybe it's just uh, this publicity photo but anyway so I, I don't know i feel like i'm talking more shit than i want to about this movie because overall i think i liked it more than i didn't it's just that it's two things it's all the things about Ciro Guerra, really it's a that i've liked his other movies or i liked his embrace of the serpent better and b uh i'm a bit torn about liking his movies right now anyway because of uh uh these terrible things that are that are in my mind and and so of course i will as i always do when i uh watch movies by questionable figures i'll make a donation to offset uh my my time spent watching it did you did you spend money to watch it no i watched it but but i'm going to be reviewing it so sure sure giving it attention so uh yeah i'll i'll be uh i'll be making a donation to I'll, i'll figure out somewhere um so, okay. I, at long last, finally watched Richard Linkletter's Before Midnight. Um, oh, yeah. So I you finished completed up the, the trilogy. Yeah. And um, 
you know, it's interesting. I was uh, texting with a friend who, who knew that I was going through these films and he just, he would keep asking like, have you watched before midnight yet? Uh, and then I finally did. And he asked like, which one do you like the most? And I said like, I mean, maybe the second one, but honestly, I now, now that all three of them are done, I have a hard time, not unlike a relationship itself, I have a hard time thinking of them as separate entities. I know I, they are, obviously. Um, and certainly the first one, when it was made, I don't think they had any intention of making a, a second one. Um, but, but I have a hard time like differentiating themselves, uh, them from each other, pardon me, um, because the characters themselves are so regularly referencing these things and the fact that, you know, one, uh, one character essentially wrote two books about the previous <laughs> film. So like, obviously these are being brought into their, uh, their lives, not in the, in sort of the, the swirling strange way of the time traveler's wife or guest of honor, but, um, but everything is just that those movies are ever present in before midnight. Um, so I, I do, I do think of all three of them, not as one movie, but I think of them as, as, as a unit. Um, that said, uh, I was looking at uh, letterbox and I was looking at people's comments on letterbox and, and even people that say it's, it's wonderful five stars. They talk about how depressing it is. And I guess I see where you're coming from, where they're coming from when they say that. Um, but it's the kind of depression that the film is absolutely aware of. And it's the depression of fantasy versus reality. And, and when you first meet somebody, and certainly that first film has such a fantasy quality to it, like it is the essence of romance uh, made all the more palpable because it's fleeting. Then you get the second film. It's like, okay, now we're, we're a little bit more grown up. We are now freer to make choices and we are going to, and we in the end make a romantic choice, but one that still we are aware there will be consequences to. Mm -hmm. Well, now we're into before midnight. Now it's all consequences. Now, like, uh, now there are kids involved. Now there are exes involved and we've hurt people in order to pursue this romantic thing. And now we, there's no mystique anymore as far as the other person. And that is the, that is on one hand, it's the unfortunate aspect of romance and long-term romance, but it's also what the great thing is, which is, a, a, a mutual commitment to remembering who this person was, who they are now. Like, it's interesting that I watched this at the same, you know, in the same span uh, as, as uh, watching the time traveler's wife, because stylistically they're very different, but they're also very, they're remarkably similar at the end of before midnight, you have Ethan Hawke saying like, do you remember that guy? from the first movie he doesn't say that but mm -hmm. that's what he's saying to us it's what he's saying to her you remember like that's me that's still me i may seem different because you know me more but that's still me that guy still lives in me and i really appreciate the film's commitment to uh depicting relationships as they are as we want them to be and the realization that they are both and uh, great performances all around. Really, boy, uh, like the, the argument in the hotel room, that is 
brilliant writing and wonderful acting because I've had those arguments where with Jen, where we are angry at each other and it is a full fledged argument. And then it actually moves into more of a genuine discussion and then it flares back up into an argument and then back into a discussion. Mm -hmm. And so the fact that they knew enough, like these guys have known, these characters have known each other for a while and they don't, they're not just going to have this be one long argument, but they have that ebb and flow. Like that is like, that is three people that are really in tune with who these characters are and the way a long-term relationship manifests itself. And so, uh, yeah, I really, I really loved it and I love the whole trilogy and, uh, it's really, uh, it was really impactful. I, I adore it. Uh, all right. Next up, uh, for me is another movie that's, that's coming out, uh, soon. It's when I missed, I missed it at Sundance by three people. Like I was in line for mm-hmm. the press screening of this movie and when I was third from the front, they were like, sorry, we're, we're full. Uh, and uh, I'm kind of glad I, or I'm kind of sad I didn't see it there. Um, Cause the movie I saw instead, I really hated, but um, it's, uh, it's called Spree. It's directed by Eugene Kotliarenko. And uh, it's a, I would say pitch black comedy to the point of often making me feel nauseous. Um, about a social media influencer wannabe type who decides to up his subscriber and viewer account by going on a killing spree and live streaming it. Um, and uh, it's, it's another movie. It's another movie which you've talked about a little bit of, of like, I, I don't know. I don't know how, how, how much I can recommend it except to say, that it's a really committed work of filmmaking. Sure. Uh, a lot went into making them because it is, I guess, I mean, I feel like increasingly this term doesn't even mean anything anymore because of how content is filmed and, and consumed, but I guess you'd call it a found footage movie okay. uh, in that everything you see is on someone's phone or a security camera uh, throughout the entire movie. Um, uh, and so that means a lot of times the the image is switching aspect ratios it's switching from being portrait to landscape depending on how the characters are holding their their phones the the image quality is is shifting based on the nature of the camera and also often there is like you would get on one of these apps comments scrolling about what's going on all mm-hmm. the time and i'm thinking about the fact that like wow they Eugene Kotelyrenko or whoever had to write every individual comment and time them out. And some of them like actually like end up playing into like the characters will react to the comments. And so that uh, comes into play. And so it's a really fascinatingly like timed out and well-made movie. Even if I think it's it's depiction and it's condemnations of like, extremely online uh life is pretty superficial i think was better handled was it last year or two years ago at the movie cam did you see cam no Uh, i didn't the the cam girl Um, i saw i saw nerve though and it sounds like a similar type of thing um uh the the actor i don't watch stranger things so i wasn't familiar with this actor uh joe Mm. keery is that his name he's pretty great he's great in this movie uh often 
like I talked, I, like I said before, that that feeling of it being a comedy, but also making me sick to my stomach. A lot of that is just in his performance. Um, uh, uh, I, 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 um, he's he's so clueless as to be almost sympathetic, but then you're like, oh right, he's also murdering people left and right. Yeah. Um, and then you've got uh, a bet a cast that I didn't I didn't realize there was anyone else in it of of note, but Sashir Zamata has a major role in it, uh, and uh, David Arquette shows up. Uh, Jesslyn Gilsig for those uh, Gleeks like myself uh, uh, who recognize Jess, uh, J- Jesslyn Gilsig in it. So um, yeah, it's a well made movie and uh, an interesting exercise, but uh, I'm not sure how deeply I can recommend it. I don't know. What's next now, for you? Now you may have mentioned you may have mentioned this. Uh, is the film is it real time? Uh, is it? No, it is not real time. Okay. All right. Um, all right. So next for me is a, is a rewatch. Um, and this is you know, I don't like the term guilty pleasure, but I do. I understand the instinct to there's a movie you like you know that other people don't like it and you totally see why you can't really argue with their reasoning but god bless you you just still like it dj caruso's eagle eye uh is a film that uh jen and i own uh we enjoy we hadn't seen it in a while uh we both really liked disturbia and i was gonna say i don't even remember what eagle eye i remember that it was a DJ Crusoe film and then he made Disturbia, which I liked, but yeah. I don't know what Eagle Eye is about. It's, I never saw it. The, the premise is, is a lot of fun. It's, it's similar in some ways to, well, it's similar to nerve. Uh, it's similar to uh, enemy of the state where we have our main character played by Shia LaBeouf, who, you know, is, he's a twin brother and his brother is, uh, has just died. And, and then suddenly he get he seems to get wrapped up in, in this, situation that he thinks is probably probably involves his, his dead brother um but he gets a phone call from and from a, a random person and the person says like oh you need to go do this right now uh otherwise like otherwise some bad thing will happen so he runs to go do this thing and so he just technology whether it be his cell phone or a pay phone or you know uh a screen that's uh, in a restaurant across the street or whatever it is, like suddenly a message pops up for him there Mm. uh, because like the, the villains here have access to all like all technology. And it's the kind of thing where it's like, it's, it's extremely uh, unbelievable and ridiculous, but they do. What I like is that they give you, they recognize that we're willing to suspend our disbelief but the more outlandish the thing is that we're watching, the harder it's going to be to suspend. And what I like is that DJ, DJ Caruso, he'll give you just enough information. It's like, okay, I'm going to go out of my way to show how this is feasible, this technical thing. Uh, and for me, that's enough to be like, okay, I'll go the rest of the way. You've done what you can do. I appreciate it without just explaining everything. And so, uh, so I think the first half of the film is better than the second half, but the concept is it has this breakneck speed to it. It's it's fun from a from a a technological standpoint. It has some I'd say rather half-assed perfunctory attempts to talk about you know the Patriot Act and surveillance and that. Okay. And, you know it's two thousand eight, so obviously that was a big uh, part of the conversation at the time. Um, 
but yeah, it's, it's just a, it's a fun action movie, uh, very poorly reviewed. And I can't argue with anything that anyone has said, but I still really enjoy it. And I think what? you might as well. I think I would too. What a hell of a cast too. Yeah. It's really so Shia LaBeouf, Michelle Monaghan, Rosario Dawson, Michael Chiklis, Anthony Mackie, Ethan Embry, Billy Bob Thornton, Lynn Cohen, yeah. uh, William Sadler, uh, yeah. Eric Christian Olsen. There's a, that's a hell of, that's a deep bench. Uh, yeah. And it had been so long since we saw it, uh, that every time some new person showed up, we're like, Hey, wow, this, <laughs> there's a lot more people in this than we thought. Uh, all right. So next up for me, you've been waiting. I teased it earlier. The reappearance of Allen Ginsberg. Uh, I watched a movie from last year, a documentary, or, or is it question mark called rolling thunder review, a Bob Dylan story by Martin Scorsese. Hmm. Uh, and this is on the surface. It is a documentary about the rolling thunder review tour from 1976. I can't remember exactly what year, uh, mid seventies, uh, Bob Dylan, Joan Baez, um, uh, a number of other, uh, 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 Patty Smith shows up, uh, Allen Ginsberg obviously, uh, shows up. Um, and, uh, it's, the movie is full of incredible footage that I'd n- never seen before of, of Bob Dylan at the time, not just performance footage, but lots of backstage footage and rehearsal footage, um, and footage of these other performances. There's a Patty Smith performance at the beginning that is Oh my God. It's, uh, uh, I love Patty Smith so much. Um, uh, it's, it's, it's earth shaking. Um, but there also might be some things in the movie and the movie never like breaks kayfabe as it were, never comes clean. I had to look up after there's some things you might go like, that feels weird. Or you might go, I'm surprised I didn't know that. Uh, and then look at it afterwards and realize, yeah, that's cause they made it up. Uh, this is kind of, <laughs> I think, I think Martin Scorsese is taking a page out of this sort of, Bob Dylan, like prankishness, because uh, uh, Bob Dylan is uh, he's he's interviewed today about it, and so he's a collaborator here. Um, and I could definitely see this being his idea to say, like, well, just a straight-ahead documentary about this thing that I did forty-five uh, years ago is uh, maybe a little boring. How about we make up some fun shit uh, anyway? And I'm not gonna. Uh, spoil here on the podcast which parts are real and which parts are are made up um, uh, it's never overly obvious but uh, um, it's it's a uh, it makes for a very fun uh, viewing experience and like I said full of uh, fantastic I can't believe I've never seen that before type of uh, uh, footage uh, including some great interviews with uh, Ruben Carter, the the Hurricane himself. Oh. Um, he's a he's a delightful a delightful person. All right, uh, so yeah, check that out. And then okay. you should have one more, you, right? I do. Do you think we have time? Uh, I've already texted our guests to okay. say hold Wonderful. on. <laughs> okay. Um, okay. So the uh, last for me. As you know, I I don't know why I arrived at this, but uh, I do enjoy the occasional wrestling documentary, and um, so I. Oh, it's speaking not of the, David Arquette, right? Oh, no, 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 I'm not. I'm not allowed to re- talk about that yet. Oh damn! Um, uh, but it's probably yes. There is a David Arquette related wrestling documentary that I did watch, and meant that probably put me in the mood to watch this other stuff. So uh, there's a film called The Price of Fame which is about Ted DiBiase, the million dollar man. Um, 
And I realized pretty quick that like, oh, okay, this is a Christian documentary because I know that Ted DiBiase oh, okay. uh, became a, a ordained minister and all that sort of thing. Um, so the first half, probably the first 40 minutes are very much about like his rise uh, within the WWF. Um, and it interviews various other uh, wrestlers like Roddy Piper um, and uh, George Steele and George, the animal Steele, pardon me, and various others. And they just talk about like his, his ability as a wrestler. And you see uh, footage of him and uh, as an up and comer. And then once he got the, uh, once he got the million dollar man, like uh, uh, character. And so that's all well and good. And then the, but then the film, it interviews like his son, Ted DiBiase Jr., who is also a wrestler. And it talks about how DiBiase Sr., uh, like so many wrestlers at the time, like he got involved with, <clears throat> excuse me, with drugs and booze and, you know, uh, cheating on his wife and all that. And so the film shifts into discussion of his, of what he did on the road and the impact that it had on his family. And so there are a lot of, of very heartfelt conversation, conversations between him and his son. Uh, and you realize that while Ted DiBiase and his wife sort of reconciled and got to a better place, he actually never really talked about this stuff with his, uh, with his children. And that's what this documentary turns into is these conversations with him and his son. And it's, they, they're often, it's often quite awkward. Um, But more than that, it is uninteresting, not because of the conversations themselves, but because the way the film is made. Um, You know, even when you just have two people talking, you, you still have an obligation to to shoot it in a way that maximizes the the emotional impact uh, or cut the I hate to put it this way, like cut the conversation together in a way that removes like all the all the dead spots. And I realize that you really want the the impact to happen. But you have these two guys who are kind of monotone in the stuff that they're saying and the the camera is just a static shot just on them and it's one conversation after another and even though their story is interesting and their dynamic is interesting it's just not done in an interesting way and so like the first 40 minutes where it's you know this archival footage and these interviews and you're really interested and then it shifts it shifts gears not not merely narratively or thematically but also stylistically and it becomes a lot less dynamic um which is unfortunate because I, I like the idea of really exploring the, the, the consequences and the repercussions of making a series of bad mistakes, even through the years, if you haven't dealt with them uh, emotionally. And so, uh, Oh, and so, <laughs> so it's, it's not a film that I would recommend um, because I, I, it feels a little bit amateurish. It feels like, they they were so as is the case with anything that's christian based like they are so focused on this other aspect which i think is important but just because it's important doesn't mean you're automatically going to do it right and uh the i don't use the term boring very often as you know but uh the film becomes boring even when they're exploring something i find interesting which i think speaks to the fact like yeah filmmaking is so much more than just its content you have to do it right 
All right. Finally, I watched a documentary that's coming out next month uh, called Desert One. It's the newest documentary by Barbara Koppel. Um, and it's uh, a retelling of um, the uh, and uh, a, a failed effort to save the hostages in Iran um, mm. uh, shortly before uh, Jimmy Carter lost the uh, Navy uh, election. And um, it's 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 interestingly made in that it has like these animated sequences that kind of dramatize dramatize the mission and for a lot of it it does seem like this maybe a little bit overly like pro-military like action heroics type of of thing but then it becomes about the fact that it's a, that the, the mission failed and that not only did it fail to rescue the hostages but that uh members of the american military died in the mission and it becomes about this more existential sort of malaise of like why did we you know why did we do this and um how the the how the hostages feel about it today how the survivors uh military survivors feel about it how the iranians feel about this mission uh today and so it becomes as i think I think that if you were a certain type of like history channel documentary watcher, Tony Soprano type, you could just get that surface level, like, Oh, it's a military documentary and get that yeah. sort of enjoyment of it. But I think it, it, it has uh, bigger questions about uh, uh, America and the military um, uh, going on. I think it's uh, really good. And it uh, took me by surprise, I think as it, as it went on and, and got, uh, deeper and, and hairier. Uh, that's it.